This week, our executive producer, Adam Gobeski, suggested we watch the movie The Cobbler, the 2014 Adam Sandler Netflix vehicle about a shoe repairman who stumbles upon a magical heirloom that allows him to become other people. So notice about 15 people down the cast list. Dustin Hoffman's actually in that movie. So we decided to watch the 1967 movie The Graduate instead. Welcome to the show. This is Cinematic Respect, and I'm your first co-host, Jessica Clares. And I'm Charlie Wallace, your second co-host. Uh, Jessica, I thought we would start out today with a little game. Oh, really? And so, yes, I just want you to come up with the answer off the top of your head. I don't want you to think about it too hard. And the answer is either going to be The Graduate or Garden State. So I want you to tell me, who has the better alienated main character? Ooh, The Graduate. Okay. Which movie has the better ending? Oh, Garden State. Really? Oh, yeah. Okay. Hands down. <laughs> I'm sure I don't want to give away too much or anything, but yeah. So it's going to the most important question here. Which movie had a better soundtrack? Ooh, I'm going to have to. That's a more interesting question. So it depends. See, you have to know your audience. And for me personally, Simon and Garfunkel, just, you know, you can't, you can't do better. So The Graduate wins for me. But it's I didn't close. know that. It's very close. All right. We I can... mean, you have Simon and Garfunkel in Garden State as well. So, you know. Well, that's what I was going to say. The only living boy gonna, in New if York. If you said Garden State, I was going to yeah. say you're wrong because that only has one Simon <laughs> and Garfunkel song, whereas this has several. Mostly, yes. <laughs> uh, and that voice coming in the middle of the conversation was our guest for this week who chose The Graduate, Dustin Jackman. Welcome to the show, Dustin. Pleasure to be here. Hello. Yes. So we've, we've known each other for how long now? Probably a decade and a half even? It's a possibility. I think we met sometime uh, around when I started grad school, 2007-ish, so yes. at least yeah, a decade. A at least decade. A decade, yeah. And this is maybe our third episode where we've had all medical physicists <laughs> <laughs> representing. Yeah. <laughs> we might need to branch out, Charlie. <laughs> we had a lawyer once. <laughs> yes, yeah. So for those of you out there who don't remember the movie, The Graduate, um, Mike Nichols' directed film is about a, a young man named Benjamin who comes back from college. He's graduated. He's at a party that his parents have set up where he has none of his friends there. It's just his <laughs> parents. He tries to go off and hide by himself. And then he's accosted by his father's business partner's wife, Mrs. Robinson, who wasn't given a first name as far as I know. Nope, this none of the adults movie. were. None of the adults were. Uh, who tries to famously to seduce him mm -hmm. and eventually succeeds. <laughs> <laughs> so this love affair goes on for a little while until Benjamin agrees to go out with Mrs. Robinson's daughter, Elaine. And even though he says that it isn't uh, something he wants to do, he ends up falling in love with Elaine and it causes a rift between him and Mrs. Robinson. And as soon as Elaine finds out that Ben and Mrs. Robinson are having an affair, she runs off back to college Ben follows her in a very stockish sort of way. And then Elaine's parents force her to marry another man. And Ben comes to that wedding, crashes it, takes Elaine away. And they go off into the sunset on a bus. <laughs> on a bus. <laughs> I yes. just want to point out how awesome that is. Yeah, yeah those are the broad strokes of the movie. Major we'll the life choices. Later. I mean, major. Your biggest life choices should end with you on a bus <laughs> where you don't know where it's going. <laughs> it would have only been better if... They had the tin cans tied to the back. <laughs> Just along the road. not married. <laughs> <laughs> Just married, but not to each other. <laughs> 
<laughs> you don't, you might have to get that make that sign yourself. I don't think you can buy that pre-printed. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dustin, this was your first time seeing this movie. That's uh, right. What did you think this movie was going to be before you watched it? Yeah, yeah. That's an excellent question. I should tell you how I how I came to, I guess, discover this movie for myself. And that's um, uh, a few years ago, I was surfing the internet, uh, you know, following a rabbit hole down uh, into something I found on Facebook. And I found this website where uh, you could look at the popularity of names over the course of time. Mm, and mm-hmm. I got curious. I was like, oh, this is cool. I typed in a few names of my friends. And then I typed in my own name, Dustin. And uh, I saw that it was like virtually unheard of before like the 1950s and then in the mid 1960s it just shot off and I was like well that's that's interesting like what what could have happened to make it so popular then and I tried to figure it out and my pet theory was uh the graduate came out Dustin Hoffman hit the you know pop culture world pretty hard and that he was the reason my name had become so popular and uh therefore I owe my my very own name to Dustin Hoffman (laughs) (laughs) and here's the thing I assumed like oh this movie the graduate he must be this like charming hot shot guy in it and and that's the reason why everybody loves him so much yeah uh, and so that was the mindset i carried into seeing this movie i was like here comes tom cruise and top gun or something like that yeah <laughs> and, yeah uh mm-hmm. i was i was uh i was shocked so do you feel better or worse about your name after having watched this profoundly confused <laughs> i'm like wait this is this is this is the guy that Tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of Americans decided to name their children after. <laughs> Holy smokes. But yeah, yeah. Um, I, I was sort of, I don't want to say disappointed, but I was just confused. I was confused by the trend line and um, and that's where that's where I stand. All right. It makes sense. That's That sounds like a physicist. Yes, <laughs> confused by the did. trend line and had to investigate. <laughs> <laughs> well, that that's one of the best reasons I've ever heard to watch a movie. Like, I I don't know that any guest has given me a better one. That's awesome. (laughs) So when we first encounter Ben, he's on an airplane surrounded by people, much like the last shot of the film that we talked about. Yes. And the Simon and Garfunkel song, The Sound of Silence, is playing. And we see him get off the plane and then go onto a moving walkway. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't walk. Which it did lead me to think, how often do you see people who aren't like elderly standing still on the walkways? Yeah, with a completely blank expression on his face. Yeah, and so somebody who's at the time 20 years old, just not in a hurry, not trying to get anywhere fast, just standing there and letting it like pull him along. I mean, you immediately knew kind of what his demeanor was. I mean, like right away, you kind of got a feel for he's, you know, he's he is directionless. Like he doesn't have feel like he has a sense of purpose. You know, you had the 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 moving walkway and you had the carousel for the luggage and the doors to the airport were the automatic doors. And so there was just kind of a lot of automated and think it set it up for you to feel like he was privileged. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I was deeply envious of the plane seats. I mean, yes, that they looks, were huge. That looks gorgeous. <laughs> I know. That was standard. I don't though. care how old that plane is. I don't think he was, was in first class. Was he in first class? <laughs> yeah, I know. I looked at it and I went, wow, that was nice. <laughs> <laughs> he looked the way I feel when I'm, when I'm flying. That's sort of just like, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? But then when I get off the plane, I usually, I usually perk up a bit. That, that didn't seem to happen. And that's when I knew something was wrong. <laughs> Wait, you're off the plane. <laughs> Come on, man. Yeah. Chip her up. Uh, and then we move immediately from that to the scene where he's at his parents' house and they've thrown a party for him. And it's like, it is overwhelming. I mean, even as the viewer, what I found fascinating about it is that we seem to see him as this very subdued 
I said, without purpose, kind of in, a, in that place in his life. But judging from everything they're saying, it sounds like he was incredibly successful. So he had to have yeah. been driven to some extent. You but like, what was he driven by, though? I, I mean, don't know. I, so as you go through the movie, the way he refers to his parents make it sound like that's what has caused him to excel so much at this point. It's what That's what was expected of him from his parents, who are yeah. very motivated and very successful, both of them, obviously, in the place that they, you know, the house that they live in and the car that he gets as a graduation It's really pretty. I did notice, like, and this goes forward a, little, a bit during his uh, his date with Elaine, um, when he's sort of, like, breaking down and trying to explain his behavior, he kind of blurts out, like, oh, my mom and dad wanted me to do this. And um, it was this moment of deep stress, and it's sort of like the the true reason for all of his actions and emotions was kind of bubbling up to the surface for a moment. And so I, I buy that explanation that, you know, his parents are sort of this driving force, and maybe that force had run its course by the time you got home from college if, if pressure from your parents is like is the driving force that's a lot of stuff we watched um dead poet society so truth if mm. that film is any indication mm. maybe maybe he was one of those kids i don't know <laughs> he needed he needed he needed a, a rob a very very young robin williams to tell him carpe <laughs> this is what happens when you don't have Robin Williams in your life. Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> Just complete aimlessness. I was sort of struck that that description his parents were giving at the party was kind of the most revealing uh, information we got about his time in college. Like beyond that, it was sort of a black hole. Yeah. You never learn anything else about that time. Right. Yeah. He doesn't talk about it. He doesn't want to talk about it. He certainly doesn't want to talk about what he's going to do after now. Like, he, he doesn't was, even want to think about it. He was very comfortable, which I thought was interesting, because I feel like these days, if you don't know what you're going to do with your future, you kind of downplay it. He was very comfortable being like, I don't know. I'm very uncomfortable about my future. And he was willing to say that to kind yeah. of almost everybody, which I thought was pretty funny, because I feel like there's a stigma to that now. Like, just openly saying, I have no idea. That plays into the humor, too, where he says these sorts of things to people and they don't listen to him. No one listens <laughs> to him. Nobody in the entire film really listens to him or even tries to understand what's going on with him at all. Certainly not his parents, who seem very social, like very, very extroverted and very comfortable with all of it. And they, yeah, they absolutely don't, never listen to him. But during the party scene, one of his parents' friends actually takes Ben aside and tells him about a new and important field that maybe he should go into. It's one of the more famous lines in the film. I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Yes, sir. Are you listening? Yes, sir, you. Plastics. Exactly how do you mean? There's a great future in plastics. Think about it. Will you think about it? Yes, I will. I've said, that's a deal. And then immediately someone else accosts him and wants to talk <laughs> with him. That's this whole party scene. Is You see him come down the stairs. I think two groups of people talk with him. He goes back up the stairs whenever he gets a chance to try to go back to his room. But mm -hmm. he keeps getting thrown around between these different groups of people. And then, of course, Mrs. Robinson you know, kind of comes in next. She follows him, follows him up to his bedroom. And I love the contrast where... He's just, he's stiff and awkward and just, I don't know. And she just doesn't care. Right. <laughs> I think that's the best way I can explain it. She's a bulldozer. Yeah. She just like owns the room, takes over, you know, makes every decision. And um, even when he tries to resist, he ends up doing what she wants him to do. Yeah. And he actually protests pretty hard. I mean, 
in a very polite way, mm-hmm. in a way that allows him to continue to be steamrolled. He tries maybe a hundred different excuses to not be alone with her. He does. It was very impressive, but I mean, obviously, he didn't. He didn't really stick. No, stick no. with any of them. Um, she wants the ride, and so he's like, "Well, just take my car," and hands her the keys, and she refuses. <laughs> and so instead of just handing them back to him, she tosses them over his head, and they go into his fish tank. And so in both of those moments, I'm like, she really doesn't care, <laughs> like, <laughs> like about what anybody thinks or whether or not something's safe or just you know, it's like whatever. <laughs> There's an interesting like visual effect with the fish tank. You know, they're they're showing the keys in the fish tank. They're showing the scene behind the fish tank and as they were walking out the door there was like this single droplet of water sort of running down the fish tank and it i don't know it kind of seemed to me sort of like that that droplet of blood in a horror movie like almost <laughs> foreshadowing something something wrong was about to happen yeah. yeah no it's it's it was unbelievable i felt like she was aloof and sophisticated and she seemed cooler than she probably was um, but Anne Bancroft, who plays Mrs. Robinson, um, 35 at the at the time this film is shot. And I just I'm just looking at her going, yeah, no, it turns out that being like an unhappy married woman, alcoholic, bored, I don't know, like that kind of like it's not not hot, but she does it. She yeah. plays that. She plays yeah. it. I don't know how you make it sophisticated and cool and whatever, but she she certainly pulled it off. So it's a story about my college days. I was actually, I took one acting class. You did? <laughs> yes, as an elective. It was a fun sort of thing to do in undergrad, and some of my other friends were taking it. But secretly, I wish I was an actor. Like deep down inside, not really. But anyway, <laughs> so one of the exercises that we had to do, they gave you and another person a character to play, and they were opposed. They had opposed goals. And so it was constantly about trying to push and pull the other person towards what you thought the goal was supposed to be. And I was reminded of that watching the scenes between Dustin Hoffman and Anne Bancroft and mm-hmm. how great of a job they do of like, I'm trying to pull you in this direction towards the seduction and I'm trying to pull away from that. And it just keeps going on and on and on. And like, mm-hmm. well, I mean, I guess Dustin continually gives an inch after inch after inch yeah. until he's upstairs in the bedroom. But like he never really gives in. Not at that moment, right? He actually gets out of the situation. I'm not sure there's another movie I can think of where I, it reminded me of that that much where they just have Two actors trying to go in completely different directions, but not being able to disengage from each other. I wanted to ask you guys about just this opening seduction. Who does this happen for? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I felt like it would be like, dear penthouse, because it just... (laughs) It, it just didn't I was like, wow, that is that is heavy handed. Like you really are invested in this thing going down. It kind of blew my mind. Yeah, she really does want it to happen. And it's but but why does she want it to happen? I guess is a good question. Sure. Just the pure thrill of it. But couldn't she have found someone other than like, what is it about his character? And that's what I was wondering is I'm like, it didn't seem to me with all the people at the party. She picked out this kid. And I don't know if it was just because she thought he would be easily manipulated. That's certainly the case. He was quite manipulatable he, he resisted well but he didn't seem to have the like you said he, he gave up an inch over and over and over again and over time she was able to wear him down uh the only thing i can think of is uh mr robinson is uh like a law partner with with ben's father mm-hmm. and so maybe it was some sort of like by, by doing this she was somehow getting one up on her husband or something like that mm-hmm. you know as a way of sort oh, that's of like a good point yeah. I hadn't you know considered that. harming him in some way who's some the small. worst person i could choose to have an affair with? yes <laughs> maybe his business partner wait maybe his business partner's son dun, <laughs> that dun, would be dun. even worse <laughs> i just felt like it was it was impressive like she 
forces him to give her a ride home. And then she forces them to come uh, walk her to the door. Then she forces him inside and all of that. I mean, it's just again and again and again. Oh, my God. Pardon? Oh, no, Mrs. Robinson. Oh, no. What's wrong? Mrs. Robinson, you didn't... I mean, you didn't expect... What? I mean, you didn't really think I'd do something like that. <laughs> like what? What do you think? <laughs> well, I don't know. For God's sake, Mrs. Robinson. <laughs> Here we are. You got me into your house. You give me a drink. You put on music. Now you start opening up your personal life to me and tell me your husband won't be home for hours. So? Mrs. Robinson, you're trying to seduce me. <laughs> Aren't you? Well, no, I hadn't thought of it. I feel very flattered. Mrs. Robinson, will you forgive me for what I just said? It's all right. It's not all right. It's the worst thing I ever said to anyone. Sit down. That's <laughs> <laughs> the complete 180. Like, he finally gets up the guts to say it, and then all she has to do is make a very obvious lie. <laughs> Uh, and he, he turns turns around and runs. Uh, he plays into it perfectly. Did you ever see Elaine's portrait, which I thought was like comically transparent? Was the Elaine's portrait thing before or after he ran up the stairs with the person? He was like, I'm just going to drop it, it on the top step. It was before. I think it was before. That's, yeah. how, that's how she got him in the bedroom. That was the first, the first moment I like burst out laughing in the movie. Oh, it was awesome. <laughs> he he played anxious and awkward extremely well. It was It was beautiful. And even in the clip you played, Charlie, where he's like, oh, no. Oh no, Mrs. Robinson. Like in his monotone <laughs> voice. And I said this to you guys earlier, but it totally reminded me of Rain Man. Where he's like, uh oh. <laughs> like it's just like, I don't know. Just, Kmart sucks. I don't know. It just like this voice, he was just clearly super awkward and stumbly. And when we're talking about how the different shots had different symbolism or went to meant to portray different things, I think a lot of it like this is very obvious, but not in a bad way. Mm-mm. It's like easy to get. Something being obscure isn't ne- doesn't necessarily make it better. Like mm-hmm. getting having it be hard to get to. Whereas this movie was like, oh, I understand why they're using the shot. I understand why he's now under the water in the diving suit, right. just like the fish tank. Yeah, I, I liked that whole scene just because you mentioned it. I loved the combination of just. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's steeped in metaphor. And it's it's humiliating. Like, it's just it's so over the top, like, all together. You're just like, oh, God, I just, I feel for you right now. That would be terrible. <laughs> <laughs> it, it really was, it put a lot of emphasis on, like, your parents forcing you to do something that you really don't want to do. It was just like this. And there are a couple of scenes like that, too. And one of them is Ben is floating in the pool, and his father comes to ask him what he's doing. Ben, what are you doing? Well, I would say that I'm just drifting here in the pool. Why? Well, it's very comfortable just to drift here. Have you thought about graduate school? No. Would you mind telling me then what those four years of college were for? What was the point of all that hard work? You got me. Now listen, Ben. But this this is what his parents constantly do. I think there's multiple scenes of that. It's like... What are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing with your life? As So what do you think of that, Dustin? Especially as somebody who's been through a PhD program in grad school, did you relate to that at all? Like people asking you, like, when are you going to be done? What is it you're going to be doing? 
I did briefly. There was a time in undergrad, I was a nuclear engineering undergrad, and there was a moment I realized, like, oh, I'm not really into this power plant thing. And, uh, you know, I, I made the mistake of revealing that to my parents. And so, you know, for the next probably six months, they were writing me about, you have to decide what you're going to do. doesn't matter what it is, but you got to pick it. You only have two years of college left, and you choose the wrong major. Now everything's going to be awful in your life. And <laughs> um, I remember thinking, like, if I finish with a nuclear engineering degree, I'm going to be fine. Uh, but, but like for me, you know, I went straight from college to grad school, grad school to residency, residency to work. There was no more than like two months in between any of those things. So I never had that beautiful, just drifting here in the pool experience that, that we all got to share with Ben. <laughs> yeah, I, I couldn't relate to that piece myself because I oh. was the same thing. Like once once I picked picked the train, I was on it until I had a job. Yeah. So we go from... Him having the affair with Mrs. Robinson to him suddenly switching over and dating her daughter. Yeah. After her father recommended he sow some wild oats and then immediately afterward recommended his daughter. I wrote that down too. I was like, dude, are you seriously whoring your daughter out? Like, what is what is that? I felt like this is something that the families have kind of wanted for a lot. Like, they've discussed it like, oh, wouldn't it be great if our daughter dated your son? Like this sort of conversation that maybe yeah. maybe people are though I don't imagine Mrs. Robinson participated. <laughs> <laughs> Just throwing that out there. <laughs> so Ben actually does agree to go on a date with Elaine for some reason. I think it's again it's because his parents say that he should do it. He really and he, can't he really tell did try no. to get out of it. I felt like for a while. He but felt that's, like he tried to, but yeah. that's Ben, right? Yeah. Is that there's so much pressure for him to do these things that, he, and he doesn't quite put up enough of a wall between him and having to do that thing. So the seduction of Mrs. Robinson, he just kind of falls into it, right? It's like the moving walkway, right? And then he has to date Elaine because that's what everyone's telling him to do. And he never really stops it like he could and he doesn't. Before she actually comes home, there's mention of the fact that, oh, Elaine's going to come home from, you know, Berkeley soon and you guys should should hang out while he's still very clearly having having this affair with with Mrs. Robinson. And I really loved the the way they shot the scenes of him having an affair with her and then dr- they would just kind of make it like a one shot of showing him like back in his parents' house and then walking through a door where he transitioned back into the hotel and then back into his bedroom or back to the pool. Show that time is passing, but you definitely get the impression that his affair with Mrs. Robinson is extremely cold. It's all business. And so you finally do get to have one actual personal interaction before he meets her daughter so that you crack that open just a little bit and know a little bit more why he shouldn't be seeing her daughter. You go to hell. You go straight to hell, Mrs. Robinson. Do you think I'm proud of myself? Do you think I'm proud of this? I wouldn't know. Well, I am not. You're not. No, sir. I'm not proud that I spend my time with a broken down alcoholic. See? And if you think I come here for any reason besides pure boredom, then you're all wrong. Because, Mrs. Robinson, this is the sickest, most perverted thing that ever happened to me. And you do what you want, but I'm getting the hell out. Are you? You're goddamn right I am. That's how you feel about me, that I'm a sick and disgusting person. I don't start this. What? Don't start acting hurt. Yep, that was the point where I wasn't on board with Ben anymore. No, I don't like, think she had to start acting hurt. That was that was hurtful. That was the main difference for me watching this movie now as opposed to when I watched it before. Like I understand that that was hurtful for him to say, mm. but now I'm like I 
I'm not relating to this character at all anymore. Yeah, the only reason I'm sleeping with you is because I'm bored. Which is, I mean, one of the reasons she's probably even having the affair to begin with is because she wants to have some feeling of worth or to have somebody actually love her or adore her or think she's attractive. And then to to say, like, how disgusting she is and just go the opposite direction with it. That was a turning point in the movie for me. Yeah, that was vicious. And there was sort of this slow evolution that Ben was undergoing where he was kind of i wouldn't say becoming mrs robinson but sort of like slowly picking up some of her you know worst qualities in Mm -hmm. terms of his manipulativeness and his his ability to spin his way out of situations and it's almost as if this is the moment where he had like graduated from mrs robinson college and this is sort of the moment where elaine comes on the scene and he starts to act the same way around her doing things to make her upset and then reeling her back in uh, and and this is sort of like the the capstone project of that evolution. <laughs> no, and that's that's a really good point because I mean during the summer months while he's having the affair with her, you see him. He starts smoking, which he never did before. Yeah. And then you see him um, getting more and more comfortable, kind of lounging about. I mean, like the conversation he has with his father when he's drifting in the pool. Yeah. You and see... when he's shaving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you see him getting tan too. Yes. And you see yeah. her tan lines. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I didn't really. That's a great point. I hadn't really seen the transition in quite that way when I watched the movie. That yeah, it's really kind of her rubbing off on him a little bit, and maybe that's how everything kind of snowballs towards the end of the movie. Well, I think him trying to have a personal conversation with her and have it not just be about sex, I think, was his kind of last ditch effort to not be like her. Right. And so him kind of kicking against that and and really forcing her because he has to work hard to have that conversation yeah. with her um, to talk about art. Yeah, and he when he does that, he doesn't really listen to her. Well, she says she doesn't know anything about art, but then she says that she was an art major. And he's like, oh, huh, that's funny. It's like he can't connect the dots there, like that she's given up, you know, something that she actually cared about and that maybe he should delve more into that. He's like, oh, okay, well, we're having a conversation now. It's not about anything. Well, and he's way more fascinated about, you know, what kind of vehicle she was in when she got pregnant. Right. Oh, yeah, to bring that up. Like, why would she want to talk about that? Yeah. It was sort of these trivial questions like, where did it happen? What kind of car was it? And it wasn't really, he wasn't asking her anything about how it felt to be in that moment. You know, it was just sort of like, I want the, the details. I want to see what, I want to see the picture in my head, which is and also kind of Doesn't creepy. he bring that up later in the movie too? Mm-hmm. Like, um, what, was the, what was the context? He does. Um, when Elaine is dating that other guy, Carl. Uh, he asks her where, like, where their date's going to be or where she just was on a date or, or something like that. where he proposed. Oh, where he proposed. That's what it was. And he goes, it wasn't in a car, was it? <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> Which was a little wink. I chuckled yeah. at that. Yeah. But it's nice like an insult. Back. It's like a barb that he can throw at her that she doesn't understand. Yeah. Mm-hmm. From the audience's perspective, you're like, oh, that's, that's that awful. Mean. Why would you say that? That, that? was, that like, was mean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but she would have no way of knowing. I completely agree with you. He became more and more like her until it was like it couldn't be tolerated. But even then, the 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 clip you just played, Charlie, at the end of that, she starts getting dressed. And I don't know if it's supposed to be like a second time around of seduction because it's the same shot, right? It's the same yeah. like triangle leg shot while she's but she's pulling stockings on at that point. And that's when he kind of settles down and apologizes. And then they, they reconcile and... And decide yeah, and, and decide to sleep together again. The putting on and then the taking off of clothes kind of mirrors the conversation that they're having. He starts putting on his clothes. She starts putting on her clothes. He moves closer towards the door. She has said that you're not good enough for my daughter, or he intuits that, right? And some for some reason he cares. 
Like, why? I have no like, idea. Like, why is he insulted by this? And in any case, she just eventually says, oh, I didn't mean to say that. Like, she just gives up. It's like, I didn't really mean it. Like, you should come back. And then, then he starts taking off his clothes again and going back. So it's like... It's a very I, I, dynamic scene, yeah. like pulling apart and then coming back together. I thought it was fascinating. That scene starts because she just wants to kind of get done to business. And he's like, no, no, no. I want to talk. I want to talk. And so he keeps pushing her to talk. And by the end of that scene, when they're both re-undressing and she said something about talking, he goes, you know, I just think it's better if we don't talk. And so it had come around to where he was like, you know what? Fine. And you had mentioned before how cold their relationship was and, and sort of the way they were undressing alone across the room from one another was a... Another clear illustration of that separation and coldness. Yeah. Yeah, it was not a passionate affair. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. So as we said, then he starts dating Elaine. And Dustin, you're talking about how he suddenly starts to act like a jerk in order to push her away, right? Because right. that's the idea that he has in his head first. Like, well, I can't get out of this date because I'd have to have a backbone. So I'm going to do this really hurtful thing to Elaine by taking her to a strip club. It looked like a street she was like uncomfortable to be on too. So it was almost like he was ditching her somewhere where she was not feeling comfortable. And then he apologizes and then starts to make out with her. I know. It's just the best apology (laughs) to start making out. It's not. It's not. It never. (laughs) It never is. (laughs) Just I just can't handle that. I this is where maybe not this scene. That's this scene. I'm still on board with the movie. I'm haven't quite, but I definitely go. Whoa. Oh. Okay. I guess that's a way to handle this. Sure. Um, but then they go on. I liked the second half of the date. I was like, okay, I feel like they're actually relating. Like, I bought it. I felt like they sold it de- decently well. But they are having a good time. It is sort of like the most you've seen Ben talk about where he is in life. I, I looked back on the movie and thought like, oh, this must be this like first real meaningful emotional connection with a peer that he's had maybe maybe all summer he had his welcome back party and his parents friends were there he had his birthday party and his parents friends were there we never actually meet any of his peers this is sort of like the first peer connection he has you know maybe it just really really hit him hard like wow i'm getting along with a person who is normal and my age and i think i'm going to fall in love with her and marry her and stalk her to the end of the earth <laughs> and that's enough, right? That's enough. That's yeah. enough for him to do all this because I think that's all. That's the only connection that I he like French has. fries. You like French fries? Yeah, let's, exactly. Let's do this thing. <laughs> um, I think that, like, I would say it was a good first date. I would not say it's what to base, you know, your giant crazy life decisions on. But um, I feel like there was probably a connection. Like you said, it was the, the first peer. And I think he even makes a statement at the end of the date when they're in the car and he says something like, You're the first person. That I've really liked being around. Yeah. Um, and so it was one of those, you know, where you're hanging out and you don't feel uncomfortable and you don't feel like running away. I, like I said, I was sold that it was a good connection. I just don't know that I was sold that it was a marriage worthy yeah. connection. Maybe it was a little bit of a regression. So he's graduated. He was in a suit. You know, he's at the party. But everybody's asking about his future. In him with Mrs. Robinson, she's obviously, you know, she's older and sophisticated. He meets her in a bar in the hotel. And, and when he did have the good part of his date with her, they went to... You know, they had a burger and some fries in the car and there was other young people around them playing music too loud. And it wasn't it was young and silly and stupid. I mean, when he walked to the front door at the end of the date, they were eating fries out of a paper bag, which is an appropriate date for people these age this age. But I think it was like, oh, it's comfortable here. So you think more like, oh, this is comfortable and therefore it's good enough. I don't know whether or not he would have known the difference. Hmm. I guess viewed through the lens of the rest of the movie, I wasn't sure if he was 
experiencing like a slow psychotic event of some kind. Like I thought maybe this was just like the first evidence that he was a little, um, a little off. And, um, you know, of course it was, it's a dramatic dark comedy. So that, that, that's not what it was, but I sort of looked at the end, the second half of the movie and I was like, oh, well, if all of this could happen, then there's nothing implausible about him falling in love after the first date. Uh, and oh, I sort of wrote it off as that. Okay. Yeah. I was explaining how incredulous I felt about the the last third of this movie to my coworkers and one of our older dosimetrists, uh, she goes, It was the sixties. It was totally plausible. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, Oh, okay. Uh, there were a lot of movies where I was like, Maybe that was cool in the sixties. <laughs> <laughs> it just yeah, it's it was a different it was a different time. Then the next day when they're supposed to go on out on a date again. Was it Mrs. Robinson jumps in the car instead yep. of her? Yep. One interesting thing I, about that scene, too, was that it was raining really heavily outside when Mrs. Robinson jumped in the car. So it's a big surprise, right? Oh, it was supposed to be late and it was Mrs. Robinson. And that happens again later in the apartment that he has in Berkeley. That's right. And he yeah. comes back in from when it was raining. And then Mr. Robinson is in his, in his, his in apartment. His, his apartment, yeah. 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 That's something I didn't notice until this time. Elaine's obviously upset. Which I appreciated because I was like, somebody needs to be pissed at some point about this. So she's upset. But isn't that, shouldn't that be it? Yes. That That should be it. Should be it. Thus endeth this relationship. But no, because apparently stalking is charming in the 60s. That is the only conclusion I can come to. We've previously discussed the movie The Apartment on here, right. in, in that which was came out in 1960, and in that movie, you know, it was totally charming that the uh, that Jack Lemmon was stalking Shirley MacLaine, and uh, in this movie, it this is like real stalking in The Graduate. There's all kinds of scenes of him watching her from like behind bushes or in the rearview mirror of his car as oh, he's yeah. driving around for so like the last presumably few weeks of the summer. He's just watching her from a distance. Right. And scampering away when she gets close. And Yes. Yeah. Super crazy pants stalker-like. He, he, he stalks her until he sees that she's clearly going back to school. And then that's when he has his epiphany. That's when he has the first time, I guess, really, where he makes oh, a decision yeah. where he's decided to be committed. He's no longer letting life just pull him along. He is going to engage. And he's decided he's going to marry her. <laughs> and says that he and Elaine are getting married. <laughs> believe it. That's what he says, right? I'm going up to Berkeley today. Oh, <laughs> hey, come on. We've got to call the Robinsons. We've got something to celebrate. No, I think you'll want to wait on them. Oh, they don't know. No, they don't. Well, when did you decide all this? About an hour ago. Uh, oh, wait a minute. You talked to Elaine this morning? No, she doesn't know about it. Uh, you mean she doesn't know that you're coming up to Berkeley? No, actually, she doesn't know about us getting married yet. Well, when did you two talk this over? We haven't. You haven't? Ben, this whole idea sounds pretty half-baked. No, it's not. It's completely baked. It's a decision I've made. Well, what makes you think she wants to marry you? She doesn't. To be perfectly honest, she doesn't like me. <laughs> <laughs> so at least this is our confirmation that Yes, this character is crazy because the parents see that he's crazy too, right? Mm-hmm. It's not just as an audience member. I'm like, oh, maybe this is supposed to be cool. Like other people know that this isn't right as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And this is where the movie and I 
start to have issues. Like at this point, like I was, (laughs) I was even with the kind of, you know, him telling her that he's sleeping with her mother and then him stalking her initially. I'm like, okay, it it can still redeem itself. It can still, it can still be okay. I could still identify with this. And then it was this moment from here through the rest of the film that I'm like, what, what is happening? (laughs) There was a moment where I was like, I, I've, I've just decided I'm going to suspend disbelief for the remainder of the movie and I'm just going to enjoy myself. That's uh, the right move. I'm just going to yeah. let I mean, it wash should, should over me. I was like, I'm going to see where, I'm just going to see where this is going. From this point in the movie till the end and looking at my notes, WTF is written a lot. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> and there's a lot of question marks mixed with exclamation points. I have the very, very last thing I wrote was that was so weird. <laughs> I don't even know what I was referring to. I think it was just the the last third of the movie. Yeah, it just, sure, why not? So what I've taken from the movie is that so much of what both of these characters do, Elaine and Ben, is just things that their parents don't want them to do. Yes. And that's why they do it. Everything that they do. And is that, yeah, can that I bring just... you into the future? How far does that take you? <laughs> it takes you onto a bus. I think that's about it. I, I was going to say, I don't know how much further you get beyond that. Right. One thing I noticed is uh, there. I think a way they marked the passage of time was his car kept getting dirtier and dirtier. And by the end, oh, it, was, it? it was like filthy. Yeah. Yeah. But oh, in the yeah. movie, his car was just like caked in dirt. So you could tell he was putting on a lot of miles and that he was, I think it was just sort of one of those ways they're trying to show his, his degradation as, as a human being. Like he wasn't taking care of himself. He had this beautiful car he wasn't taking care of, reflecting the depth of his obsession and what it was, what it was costing him. I do have a clip and I actually grabbed this one. We'll talk about the soundtrack a little bit later, but this was something you can tell was written specifically for this series of scenes and the music tracks along with it perfectly. This is him at the gas station and then his car later running out of gas. Alan, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's six blocks up and uh, three over. Uh, you need any gas, father? goes on <laughs> you know listening to it without seeing it like the opening sounds like the opening of george michael's faith <laughs> <laughs> but so in the gas station it's this sort of like muted guitar right where he's in this situation he wants to get out of it he just wants to go but this guy's kind of like stammering he can't quite get out the information so he's like kind of in place and then as soon as he gets back into the car the full chords going again and like the sort of upbeat pace and then just kind of gradually slows down with the car i like it it's just like yeah it was just perfect all of this was perfectly timed that's i loved it I wanted to talk for half a second about Elaine because we don't know that much about her. Mm-hmm. You see him continuing to kind of stalk her, but now it's it's okay. Like she's allowing the stalking. They're kind of dating, but not. And he gets all tearful and asks her to marry him. And she says, I don't know. And then he kind of asks her if they can get married the next day. And she says, maybe. And you're like, <laughs> wait, 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 wait. You're both crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so like this to me. And so then those scenes where she she also said that she might marry this other guy. So she has a couple of different people that she's told she might marry. And so I'm like, okay, yeah, no, no. You guys almost deserve each other with your crazy, your craziness. It's, it's matched. Right. Yeah. Right. 
I hadn't I hadn't thought of that, but you're right. Maybe like I I took Elaine to be like a foil for you know this sort of slowly unhinging man, but maybe she was going through her own sort of unhinging at the same time, and this was a like a glimpse into that uh, that particular window. Yeah, I think that's why they connect. I think mm-hmm. that's the only thing that they really have. Not common interests necessarily <laughs> beyond you know fast food. Just like we're both in the same place in our life and are kind of struggling to you know tread water. And what are we gonna do? Well, we've got each other. That's that's it. That's yeah. the only thing probably in either of their lives that's really yeah. seems like it's worthwhile. So they go full force for it. When he first shows up at the Robinson's house to pick her up for the date, the date that he's forced to go on. And he has a moment alone with Mrs. Robinson where she tells him how much she disapproves and she's uh, unhappy. Mr. Robinson has no idea that this young guy is sleeping with his wife. Like, they know nothing about each other's <laughs> lives. And they're all standing in the room uncomfortably together. Like, <laughs> And so that kind of, I don't know, mirrors a, not quite to the same extent yet. But given time, you get the impression that Elaine and Ben would become this. Like, they don't really know each other. They don't have anything in common. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a lot of it. Two, it's Mrs. Robinson sees what her life has become and the mistakes she's made, and she's just trying desperately to keep Elaine from making those same mistakes, because this is where they're going to end up. Do you think she loves her? Do you think she loves Elaine? Yeah. Not in the right way, I don't think. I think she sees her as an extension of herself. Now I'm going to fix the things that went wrong by doing the right thing for her, and that's that's why she's like, you're going to marry this guy, not this loser over here. Because then you're going to end up in the same place I am. And that's why she's like, all right, Ben, you're good enough for me, but you're not good enough for my daughter. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no. You sold me on that one, Charlie. That was good. It's an odd odd (laughs) sort of love. It's not warm and loving, but it is like a protective reaction. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Then you get that that scene at the wedding where it's like, it's too late. You're already married. Not too late for me. And she slaps (laughs) her twice. Right. I mean, hard. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it was pretty impressive. So, but, yeah. but her mother's just trying to save her from the same mistakes that she made. And I feel like it just comes off the rails then. Like you said, it becomes a completely different feeling of a movie at mm-hmm. that point. And they zoom in really close on everybody's faces for the reaction. Yeah. Like he goes in there and he's slamming his hands on the glass and screaming her name in this very kind of unsettling, crazy man kind of way. Like this person has clearly escaped from the mental institution. And you see like her father's face and he's all like, Grr. And you see, like, her mother's face, and she's like, he's too late. She almost looks, like, relieved, like, this odd kind of smile thing. And then miscellaneous douchebag, like, husband is, like, all mad. Yeah, and I think they're swearing, but you can't see, like, what they're you can't saying. hear yeah. what they're saying, right? Yeah. It's just the mouthing yeah. of the words. It and reminded then, me a little bit of the the scuba scene where like yeah. there were, there were people talking, but like the character wasn't experiencing what was being said to them. Then they really focus in on Elaine's face. I was desperately trying to decide what that was. Was she was she excited? Was she happy? Was it just not the situation she was in? It gave her an excuse to kind of run away from that. I don't know because I couldn't quite decide because she takes a while of him repeatedly banging on the glass and yelling her name over and over and over again before, again, almost a blood-curdling like Ben Mm -hmm. that was really kind of out of place. And now you're like, oh, the crazy. Oh, my gosh. There's so much crazy right now. <laughs> and, and and now the crazy's fueling the other crazy. And it just breaks loose. And he rips a crucifix off the wall. And they're swinging. And it's it's amazing. Yeah, it's supposed to be a really triumphant scene, mm-hmm. right? It's like, mm-hmm. hey, they got together. They got away. And I think it's shot that way. I think Elaine gets that really good jab in at her mother. Yeah. Get on the closest bus. They go to the back seat. 
they're smiling, they're happy. She's in her wedding dress. There's a there's definitely momentum of the triumphant. We both got away with it. Like he had his one track mind goal of like I must get to her. And she had the like I must not marry this this douchebag, the makeout king. And so we succeeded. And uh, the entire bus is looking back at them. Which is great. Expectantly. <laughs> and and what do we see? Fear. Yeah, but so smiles and then kind of gives way to fear Mm -hmm. and then more smiles like, hey, yeah, remember what we just did? That was pretty cool, right? (laughs) Yeah, then just sort of that blankness washing over Mm -hmm. their faces again and looking kind of away from each other. Yeah, I thought there were a few moments near the end where she was looking like expectantly at him like, okay, you did this. Now what? And he had sort of returned to the same facial expression. He was making on the airplane at the very beginning of the movie. It was almost like all of this was for nothing. And and when it dawned on her that that's where his mind was, she kind of joined him there. And like you said, they kind of retreat. Yeah, retreated, faced away from one another. I, I, I hadn't looked at it that way, but I like that better, actually, because he didn't think it through. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I need this, I need this, I need this, I need this, I have it. Did I really want it? Mm-hmm. What just, am I going to do now? Uh, the coyote just caught the roadrunner. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, um, what do I do? <laughs> so yeah, and and her looking at him and being disappointed that he doesn't have a plan. There's, there's, he has no, there's nothing here. So I'm interested what you two think about what happens after this. I don't think they last long at all. No. Um, you know, I think, I think it dawns on both of them like, oh, that was, you know, a curious little adventure, but like, there's nothing here. You know, I, I think they they make sort of uh, attempt to make something of it, but I, I think it dawns on them pretty quickly that this is this is a crazy idea. I agree with you that it's not going to last. It's absolutely not going to last. But I guess where I am hung up is I don't know where they go from there because they've mm. clearly burned some serious bridges. Yeah. So there's not a lot to go back to. And for a woman in 1967 who hasn't finished college because her parents pulled her out. And if her parents are now, you know, she's she's kind of lost to them and she doesn't have a man. <laughs> like, it's it's becoming possible to kind of make it on your own, but it's still not common. And so it's going to be it's going to be difficult. Yeah, you're right. They've left their parents behind. Right. And locked that's... in a church by a crucifix. No, right. Kidding. <laughs> and that's what they were rebelling against. And now now what's the point? Like, at least that they could relate to that, that they didn't like their parents. Now that their parents don't have anything to say about them. Yeah, I, f- I really feel like the first time I watched this movie and the first several times I watched it when I was younger, I was like, well, I, th- I felt like there was a glimmer there, right? Like, maybe things could work out. It's this there's uncertainty and they don't know. That's not at all how I viewed it this time. Mm. I'm like, no way. They, I give them like a month. Yeah, maybe. And just because they're stubborn, because they did it and they felt like they needed to do something, they're going to. They're going to try it for like a month, a couple of months, and then it's just going to completely fall apart. So what happens is he gets an amazing job in plastics, and (laughs) they open a french fry stand together because that's really what the foundation of the relationship is, is french fries, and they never own a Ford. And (laughs) I don't know. Never own the Ford. (laughs) That's great. I, I, ho- I hope they film that someday and just attach it to a special edition. It'll only happen if they move out east, because apparently that's the only place you can get anything done at all. <laughs> this is true. This is true. The only place he has traction. East of the Appalachian Mountains. He's got his sanity. He's got his ambition. Forget about it elsewhere. 
like you said, it was really nice with the way that it was written is that it was really simple. It wasn't like, what do you think this symbolizes? It was pretty much on top, kind of what they were going for. I have to admit, I I mean, I, I told you when, when I first heard you were doing this, how great I thought it was, uh, because uh, by this, I mean the podcast, because I, I don't see a lot of movies. I don't have a lot of uh, experience analyzing movies or thinking very hard about them. And one thing I, I did enjoy about this movie was that I was able to pick up on these parallel, this parallelism and these these themes and the way the music and the camera angles were uh, trying to belie part of the story. And I enjoyed like being able to participate in that experience. And maybe that's what made it so popular in the 60s. A lot of people were like, oh, I can I can totally like follow along with this. This isn't like art house theater. This is something that I can really relate to. But it's a little off the beaten path, too. I, I agree. That's one of the things I love about this. Um, yeah. Charlie, what did you think of the... Uh... Of the soundtrack. I'm glad you asked that. <laughs> <laughs> well, because we've, that... we've already discovered how much I love Simon and Garfunkel. Yeah, I was so happy to hear you say that because the reason I asked the question at the beginning the way I did was like, oh, I know that she likes the Garden State soundtrack. So I, I think that she might have conflicted feelings about that. But I didn't realize you like Simon and Garfunkel as much as you do. So yeah. we're on the same page. How Turns about you, out I'm Dustin? a little old school. I, uh, I really liked it. Um, I really like music. One of my favorite podcasts is a podcast about music called Song Exploder. Highly recommend it. And um, I, I really enjoy the, the role of music in, in like TV and in, in cinema. I, I love listening to composers talk about how they created music and uh, why it fits with the, you know, sort of the character of the, the show or the character of the scene. You know, what I liked about this movie is that just the the economy and the simplicity they're able to keep going back to a relatively small number of songs that that really did reflect the moment and tell you something about how the character was feeling and it just that efficiency uh, and simplicity of everything was really beautiful the sound of silence was the song that was played i think three separate times during the movie once at the beginning once at the end and once i I think it was during one of the montages, perhaps yeah. during the middle. It's just kind of remind yeah. you, yeah, he's not feeling any better. Right? <laughs> There's, um, I think it's April Come She Will. Oh, I love that song. Yeah, which is a great song. And that specifically is played during another montage that was showing time passing by yeah. having the transitions between the different scenes. And that's the song that's playing over top of it, which is a song about months kind of yeah, passing along. Makes, yeah. And it's kind of actually a, a dreary song almost if you start mm -hmm. listening to the lyrics about like oh this month goes by and this month dies and then all of a sudden we're in, it goes from like spring to fall and then the song ends again it's a great way to like actually integrate this wonderful piece into the movie and help move it along in the same way like it's the marriage of the soundtrack and the cinematography in that scene which actually i didn't even think about like it might be one of my favorite scenes in the movie just for that and it's just this montage well, I loved it because it almost felt dream sequence like. Yeah. In the way that you would have him open, you know, his the predominant um, wall and door colors in his parents' home are all white. It's this kind of stark, clean white. And then the hotel that he's staying in. So you can watch him walk back and forth between his parents' house and the hotel in this seamless way and watch him strip and get dressed and strip and get dressed, whatever, kind of going to the pool and going to the hotel and getting out of bed. And you're, the camera's set up looking directly at him and you see her pass back and forth in front of him, either getting undressed or getting dressed. And so you can see this just, like you said, the time passage. It's really well done. I think we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the song Mrs. Robinson, <laughs> which, is, <laughs> which is contained in a version of that is contained within this movie. They have him whistling something kind of like it. They have him whistling that. They actually 
play a verse of it. It's that song that plays along with the car breaking down and the the travel scene. No, the high the, mm-hmm. the high speed travel scenes. <laughs> Which I guess was a song that was written that was being written as this movie was being made and was one song that Mike Nichols decided that yes, I want this in, even though it's not completed. Yep. So that verse that they have isn't even a verse that ends up being in the final song. Mike Nichols was begging, was just basically begging Paul Simon for for songs like as they were creating them. So, you know, the, the Sound of Silence was available. So it wasn't written for the movie. And then he wanted something else. And so he said, well, I have this new song that I'm working on that's just kind of all over. You know, it's like history as Joe DiMaggio and Mrs. Roosevelt. Yeah. And other things. And he's like, not anymore. Now it's Mrs. Robinson. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it might be crap. It is the internet, but it found it fascinating. That yeah, was like, no, no, no. no this is what we're doing. I've heard that before. <laughs> okay, that's I have as well. I think the story of the the story of it. So that song comes out, and then they actually do the fully produced one that makes a big hit and an album after the movie. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, I think the rest of the songs are actually on albums before the movie. They're fully produced, just taken, put in. Whereas the Mrs. Robinson stuff is, I mean, as that scene that we played earlier, it's. They're playing it along with the edited scenes so that everything times in perfectly. Um, and then hand in hand, I think, with the with the soundtrack is um, the cinematography that was definitely unique. Yeah, he used so many different techniques. And there was even comments from the rest of the crew about it. It's like, he's just using everything and the kitchen sink <laughs> to make this. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's, it's you know, obviously the the iconic view of him like through the little like bend of her knee like the triangle like leg shot or whatever that's the cover art for for the movie as well but that type of shot is used again and again i enjoyed a a few scenes especially where you know the the camera was watching a character who wasn't speaking while their characters were sort of either off screen or like so far in the distance you really couldn't even make out their features and it was just uh you know watching somebody's reaction evolve um, and you know, sort of a, a moment where only the audience can appreciate what that person is feeling and everyone else is completely oblivious to right. it. Right, lots of reaction shots. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And at the party at the beginning, there's shots mm-hmm. where Ben is the person talking, but there are people in the foreground out of focus blocking your view of him. And just, and it's, yeah, a lot, a lot of things like that, just like interesting ways to choose what we're focusing on, which mm-hmm. is not necessarily like, oh, here's a shot of Ben. Here's a shot of Elaine. Here's a shot of Ben talking back and forth. Like there's none of that obvious sort of you know workman like mm-hmm. stuff in this movie i did like that i did like that quite a bit i felt like that was used a lot in particular at the party scene in the beginning which is nice in an early shot to kind of give you something different right away out of the box to be like you saw all these people talking at him but you were mostly focused on his face while they were talking you didn't often get to see the faces too closely not in detail you weren't you didn't care about them mm-hmm. <laughs> you're supposed to care about him and how he was handling it the only exception uh, was several times throughout the movie, they just showed like just Dustin Hoffman's face like framed in, you know, the middle of the screen. And I, I imagined, and I watched it on a TV that was pretty normal size, but I imagine being in a theater and just seeing this giant Dustin Hoffman face <laughs> over and over again and thinking like, whoa, that guy, that guy is okay looking. Yeah. That guy's a star. Well, <laughs> his career. Which it was. Did. It did. It was interesting to read a little bit. A lot of people were expecting, given the time period and who was kind of you know awesome and cool at that point. A lot of people were expecting and really pushing for Robert Redford to play the role of Ben, and he even came in and read for it. And there's some, allegedly this conversation between Mike Nichols, where Mike uh, was like, "You know what? No one's going to believe that this guy ever." 
like was anxious or struggled with women. And so he said something that to Robert Redford, he's like, you know, have you ever struck out? And Robert Redford was like, like, how do you mean? And he's like, see, or something like that. Like, <laughs> like, yep, that's enough. Like, <laughs> like, enough said or something like that. But yeah, to just be like, no, I'm going to take this, you know, lesser known kid. And so I think um, Dustin Hoffman is even quoted as saying, like, nobody wanted him for this role, you know, including himself. He um, even said that, you know, given that he's short, he's not kind of classically good looking and he's Jewish, that it was like he was the least expected to, to end up with this with this shot. The one person they said was potentially going to be cast that I thought might have worked really, really well was Charles Croden. I saw that and I was like, <laughs> really? And then I thought about it and I was like, I'm not sure the movie would have been as good because I mean, how can you imagine it being quite as good without Dustin Hoffman? But I was like, I could, I could see that. Like I could see Charles Croden doing this role. Maybe. I think he's hilarious. I do think he's hilarious. I'm just trying to figure out if I like him in the role or not. I don't know. I have a really Again, hard time doing impossible. that, though. Yeah. It's almost impossible. I have a tough time projecting just, these just, things. Maybe I'll have a dream tonight where I'm imagining it happening. <laughs> I think it's possible. I saw that same list, and I saw Harrison Ford on it. and Oh, yeah. I, yeah. I just pictured like Han Solo, and it was just completely incomprehensible. Mm-mm. He has too much <laughs> swagger. He was yeah. too too pretty. I don't know. I I'm glad I saw the movie. I'm very, very happy like that I understand all the cultural references, but it was weird. Yeah. <laughs> Dustin, would you recommend this movie to other people to see? I really enjoyed it, in spite of the fact that it left me more confused about my namesake than ever before. Um, <laughs> I, I enjoyed sort of the dark, anti-happily-ever-after sort of story. Mm-hmm. And um, although like I did grow frustrated with how I couldn't necessarily explain the the character motivations and the plot near the end. I found it very entertaining and I was, you know, very happy to have spent, you know, two hours watching it and, and, and thinking about it. There's there's a lot of iconic things. A lot of the underwater scenes, um, I'm sure some of the cinematography, the way using these different techniques. Um, and of course, Mrs. Robinson is synonymous with cougar, which is, you know, any <laughs> older woman <laughs> who's going after a younger man. It's like, oh. She had like a, tiger stripes on her dress yeah. yes yeah. mrs robinson you know like everybody <laughs> says these things and it's it's very iconic um and so it was hugely influential i think that seeing it now and seeing its entirety for the first time that kind of surprised me a little bit i mean apparently it was number seven on the afi top 100 and then it was restructured or whatever you want to say like revisited in the 90s it dropped a little but it's still in the top 20 I and mean, this was a it was a big deal. I would say it ages well, and I I say that as a first time watcher, so you know, take that was a with a grain of salt. But you know, I didn't feel like I was watching a movie from the '60s. Uh, I you know, if I stopped and thought like, okay, the you know the quality of the images are kind of grainy, and oh, that car is obviously from a long time ago. But it it felt like something that could be made you know, much more recently and, and still fit with the times. Yeah, and you're messing with my head a little bit, Charlie, because your opening your opening questions. Um, between this and, and Garden State, I mean, I hadn't considered it because obviously I hadn't seen The Graduate, but now having seen it and, and you're you're mentioning that, I think it was hugely influenced by it. Oh, yeah. I mean, like, just hugely influenced by it. When I first, I think the first time I saw Garden State was after this. So for me, it was like, oh, yeah, it's The Graduate yeah. <laughs> or whatever, right? Or yeah. there's like the quarter so life, many parallels. The here. quarter life crisis. Yes. Exactly. And impulsive behaviors yeah. mixed in. Yeah. I mean, but different. I mean, it's got its mm-hmm. own take on it oh definitely right? definitely the ending is certainly very different right <laughs> it's like let's make the graduate accept a happy ending okay <laughs> yeah 
So Dustin, thank you very much for being on the show. All right. Yeah. Thanks for the opportunity. You've watched something that we really think you should have watched and you've improved yourself in the process. So what's something you think that the world should watch that maybe they haven't seen? There were, uh, this was something on my mind during the movie. Like, is is this movie like any other movies I've seen? Because um, I found early on thinking like, I don't really have a reference point for this sort of thing. Um, but there were many scenes that reminded me a lot of the uh, the British version of The Office, sort of that like building awkward tension that just keeps extending and extending and extending. And in uh, in American comedy, it seems like they don't do that. They let the tension break early and often. Uh, in, in British comedy, they they like to stretch it out and make you sort of like cringe in your seat for a couple extra moments. And I personally love The British Office. I thought it was. Um, you know, it was when I saw it, I had never seen a British comedy before. It was unlike anything I had seen before then. And um, I really enjoy that sort of cringeworthy comedy. And I thought that uh, there were moments in this movie that reminded me a lot of that. Ricky Gervais is just the king of exactly that sort of yeah. comedy that you're talking about. <laughs> exactly. And I like the British office so much that I hated the American office for a long time just because it wasn't the same thing. Right. It took me a while, like watching reruns several years later, be like, oh, okay, no, this is different. It's just its own <laughs> yeah. animal. It's a different yeah. show. They really yeah. just shouldn't have the same name, yeah. quite honestly, because yeah. then people wouldn't try to draw the parallels so, so much, I think. But I was trying to decide what I felt was kind of relatable here. And I feel like the feeling, uh, the quarter life crisis, as I'm calling it, like this this kind of, um, you know, you're into your 20s, you're not really sure what you're going to do next, or just kind of not having a goal or, I don't know, just kind of aimless. And I was thinking what other movies I really like that have that quality. And I've talked about it before, but it kind of reminds me of High Fidelity a little bit, where he's stuck. And it's and it's interesting, um, what I like about that movie is in the beginning of the movie... He is stuck and he's surrounded by other people who are stuck. And as the movie progresses, he stays stuck and everybody else kind of starts to move forward. And it wasn't until he sees like everybody else around him making plans and becoming something else that he's like, okay, I've got to do something about this now. And so I feel like that draws some parallels. Plus, it's hilarious and it has an amazing soundtrack. And if you haven't seen it, I don't know what's wrong with you. Yeah, we, we're going to do it. We're going to find somebody. We should go out of our way to find somebody who hasn't seen that. <laughs> it is one I want to definitely uh, do that movie soon. It's it's in my top five favorite movies. It just is. <laughs> I've, I've said this multiple times. It has, times. To, be, it has to be. It just it does. But I just. <laughs> oh, and I love John Cusack and the whole the whole bit. But like if there are times I find myself, maybe you're in a funk or something in a weekend and you just feel like you're not being productive or, you know, I don't know. And that's like a, a fallback movie I'll kind of throw on because at least at the end you're like, you're right. I should go out and do something. Like. <laughs> <laughs> So. I shouldn't yell at those punk skater kids. I should <laughs> sign them and <laughs> make a band. And yeah, I can put out a record. That's what I'm going to do. <laughs> and I'm going to watch Jack Black sing like Marvin Gaye. <laughs> yes. Yeah. My wife and I last night watched The Graduate together. And I was talking about, oh, I just love this soundtrack so much. I was gushing about it. And she was like, we're watching Harold and Maude after this. <laughs> so immediately afterward, we rented Harold and Maude. And I watched that. And I had to agree that the soundtrack is it least on par with this i was going to say that this is my favorite soundtrack probably to any movie that i've watched but mm-hmm. we rewatched harold and Maude, and all of the cat stevens mm-hmm. songs played mm-hmm. out throughout the entire thing it's just I, I'm, I'm really conflicted now we had an argument and it went up on facebook and <laughs> people seem to really like to chime in i, I saw i saw <laughs> that was the today. consensus um, most people were saying simon and garfunkel they liked better but I cat think stevens is pretty amazing too he is i love he cat is. stevens so. And I guess another movie about somebody in their 
early 20s. So it, I guess both characters are supposed to be in their early 20s, even mm-hmm. though Bud Court looks like he's 12. Yeah, I was going to say, Dustin he looks Hoffman way kind younger. kind of looks like he's 30-ish. Yeah. But, <laughs> but um, yep, kind of trying to figure out what to do with our life and being sort of aimless. So it works in that respect, too. Mm-hmm. But the music. So good. You know, I've seen Harold and Maude, but I haven't seen it in a really long time. Now, now you made me want to rewatch I it. I hadn't either, and it was... It's still really good. I haven't seen either of your movies. <laughs> it's going to be a late night. I was going to say, you, you have to get this done. Like, you have to do it. They're both really good in very well, different ways. Yeah. It'll, well, it's nice to know, Dustin, that a year from now or six months from now that we can bring you back as a guest and make you watch High Fidelity. We've got one. Yes. <laughs> He's yes, on the hook. One. Thank <laughs> Well, that wraps it up. Thanks so much for joining us. We had a great time. Be sure to join us next episode when we watch Do the Right Thing, Spike Lee's movie from 1989. And don't forget to check us out on Facebook and Instagram to hear us discuss more movies and television shows that you really should have already been watching. I just had to talk about Simon and Garfunkel. I love them. Yeah. I got to see them once. What? Yes. When? This was their reunion. the old friends tour, which must have been like a decade and a half ago. So it was like 15 years ago when they played with the Everly Brothers. And it was, wow. it was awesome to see. Yeah. Howdy. I'm not sure I even knew the Everly you just, Brothers You were just there. got cooler. Yeah. <laughs> now, some people would say that makes me less cool. But I'm glad that I'm in a group of group of friends here. <laughs> Simon and Garfunkel fans. I don't know what you call them. Simon and Garfunkelers or no no you Garfunkel seem, you know, see and now you're less cool <laughs> <laughs> every everybody knows what they're called and we're not going to tell you because it's kind of a secret yeah <laughs> real Simon and if Garfunkel you, if you don't know Simonites. Charlie we're not telling you <laughs>